360. It's our 81st episode. Hard to believe, but getting it's true. Old. We are getting old. Uh, Yukon 360, of course, is the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Coming to you from the three corners of Connecticut and one corner of New York, we are the Yukon 360 Merry Band. My name's Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me are my colleagues, Tyler Silverio. Tyler, how are you? I'm doing well. How's it going? It's going good. Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are things? Hey, happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. And Ken Best in the Mansfield Center Bureau. Ken, how are you? We're up and running. We're good. Good. As you probably gathered from what Julie just said, we are recording this on St. Patrick's <laughs> Day, but you are not listening to it on St. Patrick's Day. At least I hope you're not. So we have some exciting news uh, that has not actually, as we are recording this, been made public. But by the time you hear this, uh, you will hopefully have heard it. It's about commencement. Julie, what's the big story? We are thrilled to announce that there will be in-person commencement ceremonies once again this year for the class of 2021 and the class of 2020. They will be held at Rentschler Field in East Hartford, the home of our football team. And all kinds of details on those available at commencement.uconn.edu. There will also be a virtual ceremony held for the entire class of 2021, similar to what was done last year, which will be streamed via YouTube. And we are delighted to announce that U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona will be the speaker at that event. Very nice. That's exciting stuff. And uh, kind of a, a welcome return. Well, it won't be quite normal. It won't be like quite a normal commencement. No, but, it'll uh, be all, you know, socially distanced, limited numbers, all of that, but... Um, but still, a nice uh, return to something a little more familiar. Mm-hmm. Ken, what uh, what news do you have? Our colleague Elena Hancock had an interesting discussion with ecology and evolutionary biology professor David Wagner that you can find on UConn today, and Tom knows this because he edited the story. Elena has been on the podcast with us talking about the scientific research conducted by UConn faculty, including climate change and the environment. Professor Wagner is one of several biologists who explored the current state of knowledge of the world's insect population and a special issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. People are very interested in bugs. The 13 articles in the issue were downloaded more than 210,000 times as of last week, making the issue among the most cited ever. The article written by Professor Wagner and his colleagues, which includes UConn doctoral candidate Eliza Grahams, is about the insect decline in the Anthropocene. There were more than 55,000 downloads when they spoke. The Anthropocene is what geoscientists say is the current geological epoch of history in which our planet's surface is changing not by the natural agencies of the Earth itself, but by the activities of us human beings. There are 925,000 species of insects in the world, and Professor Wagner notes that insects are important for the pollination of our crops, the biological control of pests and disease vectors, for nutrients, cycling, soil formation, water purification, and most importantly, they are the fabric of food webs. Without insects, we might as well say goodbye the most wildflowers, birds, fish, reptiles, amphibians, and many mammals. So it's a very interesting discussion at UConn today, and you can find it there. Big bug news. We've, so we've got everything. We've got uh, happy news about commencement and a chilling foretaste of the doom soon to come to human civilization. <laughs> oh, no. But we also have some, uh, some interesting news about some cool things that alums are doing. Uh, alums do all kinds of things. Uh, you know, they, they go into the world of business, athletics, writing. And Julie is going to tell us about an alum who has uh, written something very interesting. Julie, what, what's that all about? 
Yeah, so in our interview, I learned I can call her a friend because we're, we're Twitter friends. Crystal Maldonado graduated the same year as I did in 2010, was also a journalism major, and she had a double major with journalism and English and a women's studies minor. We somehow did not cross paths at UConn. We somehow didn't cross paths until we both worked at the Hartford Current, and now we find that we have a ton in common, and she's written a book, and I have not. Um, <laughs> Crystal is awesome, and she wrote this book. It's a young adult novel. It's her debut novel. It's called Fat Chance Charlie Vega, and it's received a lot of praise from such outlets as NBC Latino, WBUR, People in Espanol, BuzzFeed, and more for its portrayal of a plus-size Latina teen. One review on Kirkus Reviews says, Maldonado's bright prose makes for a page-turner, an overdue and welcome ingenue. So we talked about how this book came to be, and little bit about her experience becoming a professional novelist. I guess it's a little weird. It's a light fluffy rom-com book that came to be because I was in a bad headspace mentally. (laughs) (laughs) I started writing this in like 2015, 2016, kind of around the time the 2016 election was picking up steam. And I was really disillusioned by what was happening and the politics at the time and just everything that I was seeing. And I didn't feel super welcome in my own country at that time. Writing has always been my happy place. So I decided, okay, I'm going to create this other world and I'm going to crawl inside of it and I'm going to take some comfort (laughs) in this other thing that I'm creating. It took me two years to finish the book and it was just really nice to have this lighter side of of things to lean into. I mean, the book does talk about heavy topics. It talks about fat phobia. It talks about racism, but those still felt less (laughs) difficult to deal with than the reality of what was going on. And then I had this finished book in 2018. I turned 30 and I was traveling and having a good time, but I kept thinking, man, I wrote a book and it's just sitting there and I'm not doing anything with it. And it feels like I should be. And I was so afraid that I might fail if I tried. So I gave myself permission to try and possibly fail and see what happened. And I'm really glad that I did because now it's a real book. (laughs) It is a real book and it's getting a ton of praise and a ton of attention. And you're right, it does deal with some heavy topics. So it's been widely praised for how you portrayed a plus size Latina teen and you drew a lot from your own experience growing up in central Connecticut. Tell me about the process of getting your experience down into the book and also creating something that you wished you saw as a young reader. I knew going into this that I wanted to make a love story and I knew that I wanted the main character to be fat and Puerto Rican and that was kind of all I knew. I just knew that I had read a lot of YA romance books growing up. That was my bread and butter. I loved reading about love but I never saw any characters that looked like me who were plus size and who got to be that main character or that heroine. And I'm like, well, why not? This stinks. We have great lives too. (laughs) We deserve this. So there were so few stories that feature characters like Charlie. I just knew that that was going to be the heart of it. And then I used my love story with my real life husband as the basis for the love story. (laughs) Thank you. And then I really wanted to spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, when I was a teen, what were the things that mattered most to me? So it was like family, friendships, and just like figuring yourself out, right? When you're 16, you're on the cusp of 
so much. You're figuring out who you want to be, what you want to do, but you're also so constrained by the world around you. You live in your parents' house or your family's house still. <laughs> There's so little you control. So I really wanted to touch on all of those important relationships and important milestones that you go through at that age. And then also tackle what it's like to be a fat teenager, because it took me a really, really long time to get to a place where I was okay with my body and embraced it. And I wanted to take some of those lessons that I had learned and put them in a book. And hopefully the teen readers that are reading this book get to that place a little sooner than I was able to. That's the dream. If they can just start to think about themselves in a positive way and think about body positivity and diet culture and all of those things that I think are really important. If they start at that at like 15, 16, they'll be in great shape when they get older. Are you surprised that in 2021, portraying this experience is still viewed as unique or groundbreaking? I think I'm actually a little more sad than surprised. <laughs> We've made a lot of strides in some ways, right? Like we're talking more about all kinds of diversity. We're talking about ableism. We're talking about body positivity and that's great, but we still have so far to go. It feels like in some areas and especially when it comes to embracing bodies that don't all look like a supermodel, <laughs> which is wild to me because a lot of people in the United States are plus size or identify as fat or whatever. And bodies come in all different shapes and sizes and abilities. And we still don't really make room for that. We still think of bodies in a very linear way. And then anyone who deviates from those norms is considered weird or that they need to change something about themselves to the point that it's kind of damaging to your self-esteem. You look in the mirror and you're like, wow, I really wish I was different. And so I wanted to kind of explore that through Charlie and have her talk about how hard it is to have the message that you should love yourself and you should really appreciate yourself, but also absolutely everything is wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's so tough, especially for teenagers who are on social media and getting bombarded from every side. <laughs> when it's coming from her own mother a lot of the time too. I had her mom take on what I think a lot of fat people get from outsiders. People have big opinions on people's bodies and whether you're fat or not, I think bodies are one of those things everyone feels okay commenting on. Why do we think this is okay? I like the mantra, if it's not your body, it is truly not your business. <laughs> so that's really where I hope we go as like a society. You said you wanted to write a love story, but it's not just a love story in a romantic love way. There's best friend love, there's the complicated relationship with her mother, and then there are the love interests. So why was it important to you to reflect all of those different relationships in this book? They're to me just so crucial at any part of your life, how you relate to your family, how you relate to your friends, how you relate to your love interests. Those really are so pivotal. And especially at that time with Charlie's mom specifically, I really wanted to have them have this very imperfect relationship and have it be a little contentious and yeah. maybe not the healthy, just because I felt like, I know when I was growing up, I watched a lot of TV, watched a lot of movies, read a lot of books. And these families had issues with each other, but it always seemed to resolve at the end of the day. And somebody would learn a great lesson or like in Full House, there's a problem, they all hug and it's all good, right? And <laughs> that's not always how life works. And I feel like that's especially difficult when it's 
family because you get a lot of people who say things like, oh, well, that's still your dad or that's still your sister. And it's hard when you're a teenager or really at any age to hear those things and it kind of invalidates whatever you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. So Charlie's mom, she's coming from a place of kindness. She thinks she's doing the best for Charlie, but as a reader, you see their relationship and you know, oh, this is not great. This is not how a mom should be talking to a daughter. This can be really damaging. I wanted to validate that and say that this is a thing some people experience and not everybody gets that nice resolution with their family member. Even if you wish that was the case, it doesn't always come. So talking about you and your career, when and how did you discover that you were a writer? Okay, I have this very vivid memory (laughs) of being in the third grade and doing, you remember those prompts we used to have to do to practice for our standardized tests? Mm -hmm. So we had gotten a writing prompt and it had something to do with a magical tree. I remember thinking, this is the coolest thing ever. And (laughs) sitting down with my yellow lined paper and just going to town writing this story. I got so lost in what I was writing. I didn't come back up for air until my teacher was giving us like the five minute warning. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God, I feel like I was just transported to this other place. And I looked around my class and everyone else was already done. You know, they're like (laughs) in different stations doing other things and I'm still writing, asking for more paper. And I remember thinking, oh, this might be unusual. Maybe not everybody (laughs) enjoys this like I do. This is so embarrassing, but I honed my skills in middle school writing about boy bands. (laughs) I loved boy bands (laughs) and I wanted to write fan fiction. I didn't know that was a word at the time. I just was writing these stories about boy bands and I would pass them out with my friends and they would write and we would share things. So it was like early critique partners that I had no idea what I was doing. Right. You weren't naming it that, but that's so funny. Yeah. And then it just ended up being a thing I kept coming back to just because it was fun. Did you always plan to write a book and think that you would write a book? And how did you manage doing that while working full-time, having a family, having your daughter? And what advice do you have for aspiring writers who want to write a book? It was always the dream, but never the plan. I never thought I could actually do it for whatever reason. I didn't write literary fiction, which I was convinced was the only legit form of writing a book. <laughs> when I, I don't know why, I just had this in my head that it had to be some kind of adult fiction in order for it to be real. And it couldn't include romance. And of course I couldn't write for teens, which is in retrospect, like what was I thinking, right? <laughs> it took me reading a lot of other books and reading YA books and being like, oh, there is a market for this to realize that it's possible. And then writing the book and editing the book and all of that while working full time and having a kid is not easy. Like I'm not going to lie. I cannot imagine it being easy. (laughs) So like pre-pandemic, I definitely relied a lot on our families and that was hugely helpful. And then during the pandemic, my husband has been such a godsend. He's always encouraging me to write as much as possible and He's like, you know, we'll go to the park or whatever. We'll keep ourselves busy. I feel like it's so important to mention those things because otherwise it seems like it's so easy and you can just do it all. It's like, no, you can't. You can't do it all unless you have people to help you do things like that. Advice wise, 
I would say lean on those supports that you have. Everybody who wants to become a writer has a thing that is a barrier. I think asking for help when you need it and carving out that time, I think finding writing communities and writing partners can really help you because they can encourage you and you can kind of complain together and like share resources together and have that sense of community, which is really nice. And then reading a lot, I think helps if you want to get into writing, just to figure out what kind of writing do you like and what resonates with you? Because like I said, I didn't know I could do young adult writing. And it wasn't until I started reading a lot of books that I was like, oh, I can do this. This is what I like. (laughs) Maldonado said that there were a few things she did as a UConn student that she may not have become a writer without, including a magazine journalism class, an English class called Prose Style with Professor Tom Deans, and participating in the Long River Review. She's working on her second book, which is expected to be released next year, and you can follow her on Twitter at Crystal Wrote. Very cool. Uh, Now, Ken has a very interesting story for us. Uh, This is about a kind of a hot controversy in the world of scholarship right now. We're not afraid to touch the hot controversies here. Uh, Ken, tell us what the story's about. A Harvard Law professor sparked an international controversy recently by describing the documented history of state-sponsored sexual slavery during the Second World War by the Imperial Japanese military as, quote, pure fiction. In an op-ed in the Japan Forward newspaper and in the academic journal International Review of Law and Economics, the writings of a Harvard Law professor J. Mark Ramsayer resulted in a wide scholarly response to his characterization of the so-called comfort women as prostitutes who could negotiate payment for sex with the military. There is extensive scholarly and legal documentation of the Japanese military's wartime system of military sexual slavery, which the United Nations declared as a human rights violation and crime against humanity. The response included a special supplement of the Asia-Pacific Journal, edited by Yukon history professor Alexis Dudden, who is a renowned specialist in modern Japan, modern Korea, and international history. In the supplement's lead essay, Dudden writes that the challenge remains to expand education about this crime against humanity so that undetected denialist racialist claims never again pass for scholarly inquiry. Uh, Professor Dudden is extremely knowledgeable about this subject. She has interviewed some of the victims of sexual slavery as part of her scholarly research, and we spoke about the controversy. How did this pop up? So suddenly, when this is supposed to be settled history. I can't answer that yet, but what's startling, and I've, I've known Professor Ramsayer for 30 years. I took a course in Japanese law with him at the University of Chicago. I've seen him regularly in the last two decades at Harvard. Out of the blue came this essay. He sent it to five of us in a group email in the middle of December this being the contracting for sex essay, which was the shot over the bow, I guess is how I'm looking at this essay now for the International Review of Law and Economics. Honestly, I was so stunned by the opening paragraph. I thought that I had misread because it was just incorrect. I thought I had skipped over a negative. The the opening paragraph alone, for those of us who work on this, was just wrong, incorrect. Not a matter of opinion, but incorrect. And I'll circle back to that really briefly in a sec. 
But what we've learned collectively, and now we're talking about a hundred uh, scholars of uh, Japanese history around the world, in addition to supporters. But what we've learned is that in the last two years, Professor Ramsayer has published at least, or attempted to publish at least seven essays on deeply contentious, debated, hot topic, historical issues. What are the specific issues with his article? He's cited data that doesn't exist, and in particular in the contracting for sex article, and this, you know, it took me literally two minutes to go through his footnotes and sources, there are no contracts. And to make a theory, both economic and game theory, out of something that doesn't exist, you know, might be an interesting academic exercise if you're talking about a Toyota motor part, but you can't do this with something that has been defined by the United Nations as a crime against humanity, let alone dismiss, as he did subsequently in an op-ed piece, that the contrasting uh, view in the scholarly world, as he calls, is a pure lie or, quote-unquote, a North Korean plot. So what we have now discovered essentially seven weeks later, by analyzing these different articles, is that he's picked up dog whistles from a particular political party or a political faction in Japan to weaponize history for political ends, which again, you can have a YouTube channel to do that as far as I'm concerned. You can have 10 YouTube channels. You can say what you want. You can print whatever you want, especially in this era of misinformation, disinformation. But to do it in the guise of scholarly credibility and dress up fake news as academic fact is not just disingenuous, it's scholarly fraud. Legally, fraud is a very difficult thing to prove because you have to prove intentionality. It's much simpler in the hard sciences, biology, chemistry, to prove this because you can easily summon lab reports to demonstrate fabricated experiments. And so in chemistry, biology, physics, engineering, if you can't reproduce the experiment, it's not any contribution and it's either redacted or it's demonstrated as intentional fraud. In this instance, we have something else going on because we all, when I say we, it's now really quite a multinational, multivalent effort, multivocal effort. We've got someone who is doing something clearly intentional, picking low-ranking journals, that they're gonna get through the scholarly review process, assuming that the Harvard brand name will carry it through. And the Cambridge University Press editor was absolutely clear on that. He said, huh, we didn't know that this history was in dispute. And he's referring to a history of resident Koreans in Japan in that instance. We didn't know anything about this, but we assumed that the Harvard professor knew more than we did. And, and that's where there's been an intention to subvert the scholarly review process, which that goes beyond the bounds of academic freedom. That's been the most difficult component, and we're still working with that because Harvard University administration was quick out of the gate with their defense of academic freedom and are now dealing with the consequences of being shown this preponderance of evidence that the sources or the evidence that Ramsayer says exists doesn't exist. Let's go back to some of the history, which dates well into the imperial Japanese era, then leading up th through the end of the Second World War, when the 
resolution started to come to fore. There's a gigantic record, legal and otherwise, in the history. How could this possibly be questioned? How could it be questioned? It is the core of denialist views in Japan, but also as we're seeing around the world. There is a complicit denialism in some of Professor Ramsayer's supporters, and they are not only in Japan, they are also in South Korea, and they are also in the United States and Europe. And they are emerging, but what's revealing is then they retract their statements. I don't tweet. Uh, but people are sending me screenshots on a daily basis of these sort of gladiatorial Twitter storms going on. One in particular that is deeply alarming was revealed two days ago. A Japanese parliamentarian, an MP uh, named Aoyama, has started to blog to his rather Trumpian supporters that they should write in praise of Ramsayer, write to him directly, thank him. And then a subsequent blog post, he was thrilled to report that Ramsayer was responding to these people as if this isn't public knowledge. So we're not talking about what we could traditionally call a scholarly debate or even contemporarily a scholarly debate because Ramsayer has, himself has said that anybody who has a difference of opinion is a liar. And on top of that, when asked by the press for comments, he said, well, the facts speak for themselves. Exactly. He doesn't have any facts. What is the benefit of responding to this type of activity and challenging it? The true upside to this, not only has there been an enormous international awareness now among people who'd never even heard of the comfort women history in the first place, but we've also now built a really helpful scholarly digital archive. And we're in the process of doing even more of that. We're going to be able to record and archive in perpetuity, for example, through an Institute for Digital Archaeology is going to help house the voices of these still living survivors of sexual slavery. So there's going to actually be a library moving forward. Does that prevent the denialists from saying this didn't happen? No, but that's what circles this back out of a Korea versus Japan issue, an us versus them issue. This is Japanese society at its dividing point. How do we address what happened, the historical legacy of the first half of the 20th century? And that's where this moment resonates deeply with what we see in the United States, what we see in Germany, what we see around the world of how to reckon with the historical wrongs of any open society and move forward. There are still things in developing in this controversy, and Professor Dudden is being interviewed by people in the media, and she's exchanging emails with people around the world who are her colleagues who have been involved with this situation. So this this is not over yet. Very interesting story. Uh, I will say that when I was uh, visiting Japan, which now feels like a million years ago, but it was actually 2020, my friend took me to uh, Yasukuni Shrine, which is a very controversial place in Tokyo, and there was a group of sort of ultra-nationalists demonstrating there. I couldn't understand what they were saying, of course, but my friend told me that they were they were chanting something about this very issue with payments to the women who had been forced into slavery by the, the military during the war. So still a very live issue over there. Turning from a very solemn subject to one that is perhaps not quite so heavy, I would like to talk about the time, the unique and strange time in Yukon history when the university was running two bars. That's right, two bars. Currently there are, are no bars being run by the university on campus, but that wasn't always true. 
Our tale begins in 1969 when the town of Mansfield passed an ordinance making it legal to sell alcohol within the town limits. Prior to that, Mansfield was actually a dry town. Dry towns were actually really common in rural Connecticut, actually rural United States at that time. But in 1969, Mansfield allowed people to sell alcohol uh, within the confines of Mansfield. And the, the university said, well, why don't we why don't we make our own what they called Rath Skeller, which is a term meaning basically a bar for students. Uh, <laughs> why didn't they just call it a bar for students? <laughs> uh, you know, it was, a, it was a different time. <laughs> there were Rath Skellers all over the place Rath on college campuses. Rath Skeller. How do you spell that? R-A-T-H? R-A-T-H-S-K-E-L-L-E-R. Okay. There's a famous one at Penn State. So this was actually approved in 1970, but the state would not actually give a license to serve any alcoholic drinks. They prepared the Rathskeller in what is described in contemporary newspaper reports as the small red building next to the student union, which they also described as the old machine shop. Huh. Uh, so now I don't remember this building. When I got on campus in the 90s, it was gone. But if you do remember it uh, and you're listening, uh, why don't you get us on Twitter? By the mid-70s, the Rathskeller was open in the student union, not in the machine shop next to it. And it went by the admittedly not-so-spectacular name, the Anonymous Pub. I remember hearing about that. The Anonymous Pub served only beer. It had a capacity of 186 and was open only to students and their guests. If you were faculty or staff, you could not go to the Anonymous Pub. In a New York Times story dated May 1st, 1977, they say, Students flock to its movie and disco dance nights. Lines form outside its doors on Friday and Saturday nights. So it was a very popular place on campus. In fact, so popular and so crowded that the university said we should have a second bar hmm. to take pressure off the anonymous pub. So in 1977, they tried to get a full liquor license for the Commons Dining Hall, which I think was in the Connecticut Commons. Connecticut Commons, yeah, okay. Which is now uh, the site of the uh, Student Rec Center. I didn't know there was a dining hall there. I didn't either. I knew it as a, a graduate residences, but perhaps before then it was uh, for undergraduates. This is one of those stories where a lot of the details aren't clear. It's an excitement <laughs> about history. So it was originally slated to be open in January of 1979, but once again, the state dragged its heels on giving a liquor license, and so it didn't open until 1982. Wow. It opened as the Commons Lounge, and between 1982 and 1984, the state drinking age changed twice. It was at 18 in 1982, and by 1984, it had gone up to 20. So this complicated the business model of both the Commons Lounge and the Anonymous Pub, and by 1984, the Anonymous Pub was only open on Wednesday nights, and <laughs> the Commons Lounge was only open on weekends. That seems wasteful. Was Where was the Anonymous Pub in the student union? So that's a good question. I don't know. I think it was where the restaurant Jonathan's was in the 90s, and that is was remodeled extensively. It's the part of the student union that's closer to um, like Fairfield Way. So sort okay. of kind of where Dunkin' Donuts is now. Okay. But if you remember the Anonymous Pub, and I'm wrong, please get in touch at UConn Podcast. So at any rate, there were plans to maybe turn them both into juice bars because they were both losing money. Uh, in 1985, the state raised the drinking age to 21, and that was pretty much the end. Both of them closed. I believe the Anonymous Pub became Jonathan's, which was like a fast food type restaurant in the student union. So there you have it. The brief tale of UConn's university-run bars. Does UConn allow i'm confused because i know you, the, you can't buy booze at gamble but you can at like the hotel on campus does uconn allow the sale of alcohol on campus technically i don't know i think only like i think the hotel has a different 
designation. Especially mm. now, it's not even owned by the university anymore. Right. And I think you could get at the like bistro or whatever it was called, the Chuck and Augie's. I think mm-hmm. you could order beer and wine there. But that was not the case for a while. Yeah. Glory days, man. Bars bars operated by the university. My mom always likes to tell me about the parties they would have in the jungle, in their dorms, outside, on the roof, wherever. Completely kosher. There were efforts in the early 2000s in the state legislature to make UConn a completely dry campus. Um, but it did, did not work. Well, that time period that you're talking of was when everything was going up in the state because, as you as you mentioned, the drinking age kept going up for a couple of years. And so there were there was a class of students that could never drink on campus because every year it went up. <laughs> and by the, even when they were seniors, they couldn't drink. Yeah, that was uh, that was actually a federal thing. Um, lots of states raised their drinking ages in the early to mid-1980s because the federal government refused or, or threatened to withhold federal highway funding if they didn't raise the drinking age. Wow. So, interesting stuff. An alum who graduated in 1982 uh, once sent me a photo of a coaster from the Anonymous Pub, and I'll, I'll retweet that on the old main account. Because there's actually, I also found that there's a place uh, online that is selling shirts with the logo, hmm. which I, do, I don't believe is officially licensed. <laughs> Doubtful. And, and also they have a paragraph about the history of the Anonymous Pub that's wrong. Oh, you should yeah. correct them. Write them a letter. We don't write letters anymore, Julie. Don't you know that? <laughs> I, Tom would. Tom's History Corner writes letters. <laughs> Sign it, Tom's History Corner. On, on parchment, the quill pen. You have to go to the supermarket and get parchment paper to do that, though. <laughs> true. I just get on Amazon <laughs> these days. All right, if you if you enjoyed our show, let us know on at UConn Podcast on Twitter. If you didn't enjoy the show, let us know, but be kind. If you have some facts about the Anonymous Pub, the Commons Lounge, especially if you have pictures, please let us know. I'd love to fill in some of these um, missing spots with some details. You can find me, for that purpose, at TJ Breen on Twitter. Or you can uh, check out the Old Main Twitter account where I post old pictures and things from UConn history. That's at Main underscore old. Tyler, is there anything you would like to plug for the good people out there? Yes, I post to UConn FASA on Instagram. That's a social media for the Filipino American Student Association at UConn. Julie, how about you? I met Julie Bartuka, and only one person followed your instructions to yell at me about Horse Barn Hill, and that was Keller, who works in our office, just being a wise guy. So thank you all for refraining from your Horse Barn thank Hill, Horse thank Barn Hill anger. Thank you, Keller, for following instructions. <laughs> uh, Ken? Well, my exploits are usually at today.yukon.edu, but of course, on Saturdays from 8 to 11 at night, prime time on Saturday nights, the Good Music Show at 91.7 WHUS in stores, UConn Sound Alternative, and the rebroadcast of the UConn 360 podcast is Fridays at 11 o'clock in the morning at the same station. Very nice. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you all at commencement in May. 